Well, good morning. It is so wonderful to be back among you, and uh, I've rejoiced in the, this opportunity to, uh, to preach on our identity in Christ uh, as a family, because this is a family to us. This has been our family, and even though the Lord has called us away for a season, we still feel connected to you all, and, and we love you deeply, and so it's a joy to be able to open God's word with you this morning and look more in depth into what it means that we are Christ's family. We're in a series on identity, and the big question is, who are you? There are so many forces vying for a piece of your identity, so many forces vying to define you, and your imagination needs to be captured so that your identity can be formed but our imaginations are so easily drawn to this thing and the next. And so we need to be anchored in Christ, in our identity in Christ. So let's look and see what Jesus says about our identity. Who are you? We're going to expand on that basic question today. And today I want to ask, who are you in relation to the one sitting next to you? What do they mean for your identity? What does it mean that they have a different personality, a different gender, a different race, a different economic status, a different education background, different theological convictions, or even maybe a different political affiliation? How does the other define you? The current zeitgeist is certainly one of polarization, hostility, and alienation. We all know this. We experience this day to day. And the recent election is just one of many powerful examples of how divided we as a people are. From the friends that we choose to the articles on our Facebook feeds, we are isolating ourselves more and more within an echo chamber. We spread fake news to reinforce our presuppositions. We engage in verbal sparring matches online with friends of friends of friends for the, from the safety of our own ivory tower. We sigh in exasperation when our parents don't buy cage-free eggs <laughs> and don't recycle. It's, it's rather uncomfortable to fight for unity it's far more comfortable to perpetuate division. This division is perhaps most visible in the racial tensions that continue to persist in our country. Prejudice and fear continue to define our policies toward minorities, foreigners, and refugees. I know many of you are burdened by this, and so am I. And at the same time, I have to admit, having lived, up, lived most of my uh, growing up years overseas, 16 years, I don't feel like I have a good handle on, on this issue, and I don't feel like I can speak with much authority. But what I can say is that this is not just an American issue. This is a universally human one. We are so easily divided. The hostility runs deep infecting even the hearts of young children. Um, when I was 
four years old, my family moved to the Czech Republic to start the ministry called Josiah Venture that we're now going to return to and join. And um, when I was six years old, I got sent to first grade to Czech National School. Um, my parents believed that in order to really uh, root us in, in the community and the culture, we needed to be family on mission. And so I went to a Czech school. I didn't know very much Czech at the time when I started, um, and I was definitely an outsider. I may have looked pretty similar to my classmates, but I, I was different. I stood out. Um, I was struggling to learn the language and make friends. But one of my classmates stood out more. Her name was Silva, and she was a girl from the gypsy community. Animosity, distrust, and racial prejudice toward gypsies runs deep in Czech culture. So much so that even my first grade six-year-old classmates had internalized it. From the first day, Silva was shunned by her peers, excluded from activities, and even uh, they were afraid of touching her for fear of contracting some sort of unknown disease. At first, I was, I was horrified. I didn't understand why my classmates would treat someone like that. And my parents encouraged me to show her kindness, and I tried at first, but it just got hard. I started caring more about what my new friends thought of me, desiring to be accepted myself, rather than trying to break patterns of abuse. And soon, apathy gave way to culpability. Although I was as much an insider as she was, um, I had found a way of getting in by excluding her. I accepted injustice because it was comfortable. I am guilty of racism, of divisive behavior, of sowing hostility instead of peace. And deep down as one who is in Christ, I do want peace. And I believe that you want peace as well. We can probably all agree on that. But what I think we actually want more is comfortability. I may want unity, but only if that unity is achieved on my terms. I'll welcome you, I'll show you grace, I'll treat you as family, but only if you come to my side of the fence. You change the way you dress, uh, start buying those cage-free eggs, um, start voting for my party, start acting more educated, start promoting my issues, et cetera, et cetera, and, and then we can have unity. Is this your vision of what unity looks like? Each of our individual conceptions of unity is too vastly different, and often it, they are mutually contradictory. We need Christ himself to give us a vision of unity, to define our identity. As long as we form the ideal Christian community in our image, we will never see past the impasse. Instead, Christ must form us into his image, a new humanity that is reconciled to one another and to God. So again, who are you in relation to the other sitting next to you? As we look at 
our passage today from Ephesians, we'll see that these problems of division are nothing new. They happen in the Czech Republic. They happen in Chicago. They happened in, in first century Turkey. One of the first Christian communities, a church in a city called Ephesus, also needed to understand how the good news of Jesus Christ brought unity to their divided community. In his letter to this Ephesian church, St. Paul longs to see these believers receiving their new identity in Christ rather than holding on to old divisive categories. You can follow along with me uh, in your bulletins or in your Bibles as we read from Ephesians 2. Starting in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Let's let that sink in. This early church was made up of two very different people groups, Jews and Gentiles. And the way that we can understand them in our context today is with the terms privileged and unprivileged. The haves and the have-nots. And in this passage, Paul is specifically addressing these unprivileged Gentiles. Previously, Gentiles had been excluded from the community of faith. Jews were the inheritors of God's promises for salvation. They were the privileged, no doubt about it. Their advantages were substantial. In contrast, the Gentiles, being separated from the chosen people of Israel, were outside the sphere of God's election and isolated from any covenant relationship with him. This invisible reality was evidenced by a visible sign, the uncircumcision of the Gentiles. And this external proof was a code word for the insurmountable difficulties and divisions that divided Jews and Gentiles. The divisions that Gentiles, the unprivileged, experienced in relation to the Jews, the privileged, were real. Paul pulls no punches. He is brutally honest about their spiritual condition. The obstacles to unity were great. Here we find the first step toward unity. And that is honesty about the obstacles that we face. Honesty about the prejudices that are infectious. Honesty about the privilege that alienates us from those outside of the elite community. What we need to hear is that no matter what ethnic, economic, or cultural background you come from, you were once in the same spot as these Gentiles. My guess is that most of us here are Gentiles. We are not Jews. Therefore, Paul's words to the Ephesian church are just as relevant an exhortation to Emmanuel Anglican Church in Chicago. Christian, listen closely. Remember, 
that you were once unprivileged, separated from the Messiah of Israel, alienated from the community of faith and a stranger to the promises of God. Remember that you were without hope in this life, even God-forsaken. You had no advantages, no one advocating for you. You had no safety net. Remember. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, and so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What a beautiful and arresting contrast. In Christ, a dramatic change has occurred. And as Father Aaron talked about last week, a beautiful and costly exchange has been made on our behalf. Through the sacrificial death of Jesus, those previously alienated were brought into a warm embrace. This shift was, not made, was made possible not because of a system, but through a person. The Jesus of history, the promised one of Israel, the hope of humanity. Note that this acceptance of the Gentiles, the unprivileged, is not reduced just to a conversion to Judaism. From its beginnings, Christians never understood their faith as a subset, subset of the Jewish faith. Rather, in Christ, something new was created. Listen to what an ancient pastor named John Chrysostom said. Don't you see? The Greek does not have to become a Jew. Rather, both enter a new condition. His, name is not to, his aim is not to bring... Greek believers into being as different kinds of Jews, but rather to create both anew. Rightly, he uses the term create rather than change to point out the great effect of what God has done. For though the creation is invisible, it is no less a creation of its creator. Gentiles and Jews are members of a new community which transcends Israel and its past privileges and where Gentiles, along with Jews, are on equal footing. This whole section shows how deep the divisions were between the two communities before Christ's coming and to what lengths he has gone to bring the two into one new humanity. This really gets at the heart of Jesus' ministry of reconciliation, the removal of hostility and alienation. 
And the opening words of verse 14 express the central theme of this, question, this section. He himself is our peace. This peace encapsulated, encapsulates many nuances, well-being, salvation, harmony among people. Yet peace is not just a state. It is a person, Jesus Christ. He brings peace and he also embodies peace. And the peace that Christ offers is both horizontal and vertical. First, Christ reconciles Jews and Gentiles into one new man. And second, Christ reconciles this one new man to the Father. Jews and Gentiles have been brought into a new unity that surpasses what they once were. One biblical scholar puts the significance in this way. In accomplishing this, Christ has transcended one of the fundamental divisions of the first century world. And if Christ could accomplish this in the first century, he can surely accomplish it in the 21st century here in Chicago. This new humanity is not achieved by transforming Gentiles into Jews or vice versa. It's not achieved by changing the unprivileged into the privileged or lowering the status of the privileged to match the unprivileged. Rather, Christ's reconciliation is nothing less than a new creation. And the basis for our peace with each other is peace with God. This does not mean that the whole human race has been united or has achieved peace. There is a further stage in Christ's work that Paul now mentions. The reconciliation that is available for the believing community is also offered to the whole world through the very mouth of the reconciler. Verse 17 says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to you who were near. The one who is our peace and who made our peace now announces peace. And Jesus himself is the evangelist, making proclamation to those near and far. And this gets to the heart, to the center of God's heart for the world. God does not only reach out his arms to those who are nearby, who have been groomed in the things of the faith and who have come with the right pedigree. God also, without bias, extends his arms to those who are hopeless, to those who are lonely, to those who are downtrodden, to those who have been abused, to the God-forsaken, to the idolatrous, to the poor, to the hungry, to the displaced, to the colored, and to the broken. Together, those near and far have been brought into one family of God. And in this family, the Father makes no distinctions based on race, class, or privilege. All his children eat at the table, have full access to the fridge and pantry, each are known intimately and loved uniquely. 
And this access is made possible by the one Holy Spirit, which resides in the one new humanity. Let's continue reading in verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So then, you who were once alienated to one another have been united into one household of God. And this is the profound truth about your identity today. You are Christ's family. In Christ, united with him, you are a member of his household. But you are not in this house alone. You are surrounded by those who, although they look quite different from you, are nonetheless your family. You are at home in God's family. This is a place of refuge, of protection, of wholeness of identity, and of belonging. Because of your union with Christ, you are no longer homeless or even second-class citizens living in a foreign country. You are now fellow family members and citizens with the saints, the church across time and geography. Paul gives us one more picture to better understand our new identity in Christ. He says that this new humanity is being built together into a dwelling place for God. This temple where God dwells only functions in relation to Christ as he is its cornerstone. And the good news is God already dwells among you. God already dwells in his temple, even as it is still growing. There is incredible beauty, beauty to this reality still being realized. God does not wait for us to exhibit perfect unity before he takes up residence among us. Rather, in Christ, more and more bricks are being added as those far and near are brought into the family. There is much more work yet to be done. We are not there yet, but God dwells among us by the power of his spirit. Therefore, in Christ, you are no longer estranged to one another, but are members of one family of God and are continuing to be built up into a residence for God by the power of his spirit. You are Christ's family, and that means peace. And this family is yours if you are in Christ. You, ex you have access to the Father as well as to one another. You certainly bring all your history to the family, but that is no longer the defining aspect of your identity. 
Paul does say to remember where you came from, but mostly to highlight how far you've been brought. For the privileged and the unprivileged to become one, there is a cost. Both must give something up. To join the table, we have to make some room and let go of some of our pet issues and prejudices. The cost for the privileged is to let go of comfortability. Our calling, brothers and sisters, is not to be comfortable, particularly at the expense of those less privileged. Seek out uncomfortability so that you may become familiar with the other in your midst. We need to learn to listen to those who are different from us without interrupting them to correct or state our own opinion. For the unprivileged, your cost is patience. You've had to be uncomfortable for a long time. Christ asks that you endure a little longer as he continues to draw more and more into his family so that you too might become familiar with the other instead of harboring resentment toward them. There is a cost, but the shared family meal is worth it. Peace and unity cannot be achieved if God is formed into our image. If we think that unity will be achieved when those who once disagreed with us will see the light, uh, then we are fooling ourselves. You cannot win against the deeply ingrained systems of racism, injustice, and hostility. If it's you against the system, the system wins. But Christ has created a new way. We are one new humanity. And in this new humanity, those near and those far have been united against all odds. The walls of hostility have been torn down. I know you want this peace, this unity, beloved Emmanuel. I see God working in your midst. Yet the work is not done. We must each embrace our place at God's table, receiving our new identity in Christ's family and releasing those markers that simultaneously defined us and alienated us from others. Christ has done a new work. And as we draw near to the table today, let us do so as Christ's family. Once alienated, now made whole. This is a table for all those united in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We may all come from different places, but in Christ, we are one family. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.